Today's episode is sponsored by Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BrainsOn. Just go to Indeed.com slash BrainsOn right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BrainsOn. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to BrainsOn, where we're serious about being curious. We made it to the peak. What a view. Yeah, all that nature, all those plants and animals. National parks are the best. Yeah, I could stand here all day staring at it. Me too. (sighs) Wait, aren't we supposed to be doing something? What do you mean? We are doing something. We're taking in this view. No, no, no. We're supposed to be hosting a special series on Brains On right now. It's all about the national parks. Oh, right. Was that today? Yeah. Oh, Oh, okay. Uh, we gotta go. Uh, we're gonna be late. Um, oh, okay. Um, put the theme song on, and that should buy us a little bit of time while we, like, scoot down this mountain. Okay, let's go. Keep listening. Okay, back in the studio. You are listening to Brains On from American Public Media. I'm your host, Molly Bloom. And I'm Carter Watley. So, Carter, we asked you to co-host this series with us because you have a very special relationship to a national park. What is that? Yes, I lived 13 years in Yosemite National Park. And you are 13 right now? Yeah. So, you just like a few months ago, you just moved kind of right outside the park, right? Yeah. So... That is an experience that not a lot of people have had. So how, how is it that you came to live in Yosemite? How is your family there? Um, my dad worked in the park, and we were able to live there. That's amazing. Can you describe what your house in Yosemite looked like? Was it a tent or was it a house? It was a house, and it was connected to another person's house, but there was a wall in between, and the, you had a meadow in front of you and trees, and then you saw a half dome. What's half dome? Half dome is um, one of the biggest mountains in Yosemite National Park. So you woke up in the morning and looked out and that was just there. Yeah. That's incredible. And I know you really enjoy hiking. Yeah. How how many hikes would you say you've been on in your life? Can you even count? Um, No, I, I don't know how many I've been on, but I know I've been on a lot. And what are some of your favorite hikes? Um, I like the Vernal Falls Mist Trail because it's it's you hike up to the top of a waterfall and you can hear the waterfall before you even get there. And as you get closer, you get misted with the water in the springtime. Because you're like hot from hiking. So that probably feels awesome. Yeah. So what advice do you have for people who may not have hiked before and they might be interested in starting to hike? You want to be prepared and ready. Have, like, have enough food and water. And you want to know what you're doing. Just like, know, if you know what you're doing, you want, don't want to like start out fast. You want to start out slow and steady. So what is your favorite animal in Yosemite? Um, I like the bear. I think it's just really cool how like it just like walks, roams around and does whatever it wants. So do you have to like get out of the bear's way? Is it dangerous? It can be. You just don't you just don't want to like, get close to any like animal really. You just want to leave it be. So what kind of stuff does the bear do? Um, sometimes it climbs in the trees and like eats the apples. And sometimes it just walks around and just sits there. (laughs) 
So then that's an important part, too, of being in a national park, of sort of enjoying it, but also leaving the nature to be. Yeah. You want to listen to the sounds of nature and, like, winds in the trees and birds singing, and you will always want to respect nature. That is very wise. And, and we hope this series of stories on the national parks helps other people understand the parks like you do. We at Brains On love the national parks. In fact, a few years ago, we did a series all about the rad science happening in these amazing outdoor spaces. You can find the rest of the series on our website, brainson.org. We'll take you to a desert, to a beach, and to a place where wild horses still roam. In this episode, we're taking you to South Dakota. Now, dear listener, what do you think of when we say national park? Probably trees, trails, mountains, lakes, all the great outdoor stuff, but... What's underneath it all? In the case of South Dakota's Wind Cave National Park, a lot. We sent producer Mark Sanchez deep underground for this story. Caves come in all shapes and sizes. There are caves of limestone with dramatic stalactites dripping from the roof. There are caves in glaciers, swathed in patches of green and blue. There are even caves near volcanoes in tubes left behind from lava flow. With all this variety, it can be difficult to define just what a cave is. So let's keep it simple. The main kind of thread amongst them all is that it's naturally forming, you know, versus a mine that is, you know, human created. So it's a natural occurring void in the rock or in the earth. Mark Ohms is a scientist at Wind Cave National Park in the Black Hills of South Dakota. He's been exploring caves for 30 years. In other words, he's a caver. Above ground, Wind Cave National Park fits in with its surrounding South Dakota landscape. Bison mingle with prairie dogs, ponderosa pine trees sprout up through tall natural grasses. It's truly a beautiful and inspiring sight. When I talked with Mark Ohms, however, we had just stepped off an elevator. We were about 300 feet underground. No vegetation, no animals. Just a huge chamber room with walking passages sprouting off in all different directions. Currently, we have over 146 miles of cave passages mapped. We really don't know the true extent of it because we have, you know, lots of passages we haven't even been in yet. You know, if you look on the map in the visitor center, you'll see all these little things that lead to question marks, you know, and those are exactly that. You know, we don't know. You know, those are question marks. Nobody's been in that one yet. Come with me for a second to the Himalayas, Mount Everest. At its peak, Mount Everest is a little over five miles high. Now think about the 146 miles of caves that have been mapped at Wind Cave. If you were hovering over the cave, it would only be about one square mile. Not too impressive. But underground, those 146 miles look like a tightly wound ball of string. Spaghetti-like paths twist back and forth and go as deep as 500 feet below the ground. And not all the paths are walkable. To be a caver means crawling into crevices and getting really dirty. Being nearly stuck in a crack hundreds of feet underground, uh, not such a fun time if you ask me. But for cavers like Mark, that's just what the job calls for. About a year ago, we went um, down into this passage called Shelop's Lair. And there was a tight spot that somebody found way back in the 70s called the Meat Grinder. And I was looking at, you know, the reports and it's like, well, nobody's been back. And there was question marks back there. And I was like, well, 
I want to go to this question marks, of course. So we went there and kind of found out why nobody's been back. <laughs> only one, only one trip went through the meat grinder. Yeah, thanks, because it is. Yeah, I I bled. <laughs> you know, I mean, it tore my shirt up. It tore my skin up. It's very tight. You know, it's sub eight inches. You know, it's probably seven and three quarter inches and stuff for about two hundred feet. You know that it was nasty. In something like that, you. You're crawling along a passageway that's fewer than eight inches high, yeah. and then does it open up? Does it ever? Is there ever a payoff? Yeah, luckily it opened up on the other side, and then we get to the the question marks. We're actually walking passages, you know. So we were quite shocked at, and we surveyed about a thousand feet of new passages, and we left two question marks of our own that had strong airflow coming out of. So we need to go back, and then you have to go back through the yeah. passage. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. It was probably yeah. I'm still healing on that one, so. One of the ways cavers try to figure out where to go next is by searching for wind. Think about it. If you are walking above ground near some rocks, say you pass a crack and feel a gust of wind, where is that coming from? That's a good indication that there's a void, an empty space somewhere beneath the ground, a void big enough to hold and move that wind. And that's exactly how the first explorers of Wind Cave figured out it was there. There's a 10-inch hole in the side of a cluster of rocks. This natural cave opening gusts with the unmistakable sound of wind. It can blow up to 30 miles an hour. And it's not just pushing out, either. The cave breathes in and out. And it's because of the weather, because of barometric pressure. You see, the cave is so vast, there is so much space, that it has its own air pressure system. Air pressure below the ground is constantly trying to match the atmospheric pressure above ground, commonly known as barometric pressure. When there's a low-pressure system above the ground, which usually means cloudy skies and storms, air pressure inside the cave blows out. And when the skies are clear, a good indication of high barometric pressure, the cave takes a big breath in. The land surrounding the Black Hills and Wind Cave has been occupied by the Lakota people for centuries long before American settlers. Wind at the natural cave opening has been mythologized as a sacred area, which is key to the origin of the Lakota. It was the breathing that lured the first explorers of Wind Cave underground in the late 1800s. Just imagine making your way into this hole in the ground. Nobody had ever been there before. There were no sidewalks or paths, definitely no electricity. The only source of light, a candle. Otherwise, the cave is darker than night. Even with all those barriers, over the years, people continued to explore and map the cave. Maybe one tiny crevice leads to another path and another crevice, which might open up into a new, undiscovered room. Coming up, Mark Ohms goes looking for that next big room, and he's not about to let anything get in his way. Not even a den of rattlesnakes. We can't do an episode of Brains On without this. Here it is. Any guesses? Maybe a bird or a seagull? 
Excellent guess. Well, we will be back with the answer and give you another chance to guess in just a bit. Do you have a mystery sound you'd like to share with us? A question you want answered on the show? Or maybe you just want to send us a drawing or a high five. You can do all of that at brainson.org slash contact. Or you can find our mailing address at our website, brainson.org. We love hearing from our listeners so much. They send us brilliant questions like this one. My name is Aria from Melbourne, Australia. My question is, do bears really eat honey? We'll be back with the answer during our moment of um at the end of the show. And we'll read the latest group of listeners to be added to the Brains Honor Roll. And if you stay tuned to the very, very end, you'll hear a preview of our newest episode of Smash Boom Best, the debate show where we take two things, smash them together, and find out which one is best. This week, it's Loki versus Athena. And listeners, we need your help. We're working on an episode all about spacesuits right now, and we want to hear from you. If you could invent a super suit of your very own that would help you with something right here on Earth, what would it do? Send us your super suit ideas at brainson.org slash contact. We'll include some of your answers in that upcoming episode. You're listening to a special National Parks edition of Brains On. And before we get back to Wind Cave National Park, it's time to go back to that mystery sound. Let's hear it one more time. Okay, so that was recorded on the South Dakota Prairie. Any new thoughts? Would it be bats? Oh, good guess. Here's the answer. Uh, my name is Greg Schrader. I'm the chief of resource management here at Wind Cave National Park. And that sound you just heard was a prairie dog jump yippee. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> prairie dogs are adorable. I saw them for the first time last summer, and they became my new favorite animal. They stand <laughs> up on their hind legs, and they make those cute little yips. And they actually have a very complicated communication system with those yips. So it's not just for fun. There's been a lot of research done on, on what I'll call the language of prairie dogs. And it's a very complex language um, between normal yips back and forth and communication with each other saying, um, you know, like either this is my territory. I live over here. Don't come in here, you know, or everything's fine, like the all clear sign. But they'll have distinct sounds for a badger that comes into their area, a coyote, an eagle, they'll let out a different size warning call. One of the other things that they do is you'll notice the grass height is always short on a prey dog colony. That's so they can see their predators and basically warn each other. Once you hear it, you'll hear that call kind of almost echo across a prey dog colony as they're kind of relaying it to each other. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's very cool. Today, we have our headlamps on to explore the passageways of Wind Cave National Park. You can hear the rest of our series on national parks at brainson.org. Just search for National Park. Now, let's go back to producer Mark Sanchez as he shines a light on some of the newest and oldest discoveries at Wind Cave. If you measure the amount of air that Wind Cave holds and compare that to the 146 miles of passageways and chambers, only 10% of the cave has been discovered. Part of Mark Ohm's job as a physical science technician for the park is to look for new caves. And that's just what he was doing in the spring of 2004. 
there's a lot of cave out there to be discovered yet. So thinking, well, rather than necessarily pushing it from wind cave side, why not maybe try to find another entrance and, and come in from, you know, kind of the back door, if you will. So, yeah, so I was out purposely looking for that back door, that uh, other entrance. Based on the geology of the area, Mark picked a spot to go searching for a hole that moved air. And he found one. But there were a couple problems. For starters, I couldn't fit. Um, it was It's too small for human entry. Secondly, it had quite a few rattlesnakes denned up in it. I don't know yeah, which one was worse. So I had to wait for the rattlesnakes to leave. And then, you know, we're going to have to dig to enlarge this, you know, and... and large enough to for we can get into it so we have you know researcher who looked at that airflow and compared it to wind cave and you know the patterns look exactly the same you know so we started you know removing the dirt and it was just a nice soft dirt floor that we had to remove and then we started finding bones and that was a whole nother story you know we thought oh you know it's probably just recent stuff you know maybe 100 years you know something of that nature so Mark asks some paleontologists to come check out what he's unearthed, and it turns out it's way older than he guessed. We're not talking tens of years. We're not talking hundreds of years. We're talking at least 10,000-plus you know, year-old stuff. And we started finding critters that, you know, camels, horses. You know, we're not talking, you know, the horse, you know, cowboy horse that's, you know, around today or anything. We're talking, you know, horses, you know, that are long gone extinct and, and camels and bears and, you know, and things that we don't have around here anymore. Wow. And then they did some carbon dating. We have a bison that's 35,000 years old. We have a horse that's 38,000 years old. So we're even getting older as we, you know, get down deeper into the dirt. So we're about 200 feet into that now and we're still digging. We have good airflow coming out and we're still finding just this has just turned into a treasure trove of bones. There's a pretty good chance that this cave will be connected at some point to Wind Cave, but it's still too early to tell whether that's going to be the case. But since Mark was the one to find it, he was the one that got to name it. And since he's only been able to get down about 200 feet in the last 12 years, he calls it Persistence Cave. It's been taking a while to, you know, to get to point A to point B. And I said, you know, just don't give up hope and, you know, be persistent and that will pay off. You know, this persistence will pay off and we'll be into the, the big cave system. As the excavation continues, the limestone walls of persistence will most likely share some features of Wind Cave. You may have seen other limestone caves with stalactites dripping from above and stalagmites protruding from the ground. Those icicle-looking formations take centuries to form. They use water that's slowly dripping through the mineral-filled ground. Compared to those other limestone caves, Wind Cave is pretty dry. You'll only find a handful of stalactites and stalagmites there. Instead, its passageways are lined with different kinds of mineral formations. Frostwork, popcorn, and boxwork. Frostwork looks like pale crystal snowflakes protruding out in little tufts and spines. It reminds me a little bit of those clusters of coral you might see underwater in the ocean. The most delicious sounding formation, popcorn, looks a little like bumpy styrofoam bubbles that are sort of growing out of each other and out of the walls. The most unique formation, however, is boxwork. In fact, 95% of the entire world's known boxwork is in this cave, and it is everywhere. It kind of looks like the stringy insides of a pumpkin or maybe a close-up picture of a spiderweb. I took one of the cave tours with a ranger named Earl, and he explained how boxwork is formed. The limestone that we're in, it's really old. 
We're talking Mississippian era in geologic time, 320, 350 million years old, older than the dinosaurs. And when this limestone was really young, it was flat. And above us, there were no prairies, there were no hills, it was all a sea. That sea trickled down into the cracks in the limestone, and it brought with it a bunch of different minerals. But most importantly, for the boxwork over there, and also for things like frostwork, it brought with it a mineral called calcite. And that calcite got down into the cracks and hardened over a very, very long period of time. Now, most li limestone caves form because of a liquid called carbonic acid, and this cave is no different in that regard. These caverns filled up with carbonic acid, and that acid dissolved away the ceilings, the walls, and the floors. Now, carbonic acid sounds pretty nasty, but it's really just soda pop. Most of us drink it almost every day. Soda pop, seltzer water, CO2 and water. It's the basic acid that forms a lot of limestone caves. But what happened in here that's different from a lot of caves is as it dissolved away those walls and ceilings and floors, it left exposed that mineral crack filling, the thing we call boxwork, the thing that had been put there so long before, because it's harder than the limestone. And so it's sort of like if you built your home out of sugar bricks, but you use brick mortar to hold it all together. What would happen when it rained? Yeah, you're laughing. What would happen? Yeah, but what would be left behind? The mortar. Yeah, the mortar, exactly. The mortar skeleton of the, line, of the sugar that's gone. And that's all boxwork is, that webbing. It's just the calcite skeleton of the limestone that's no longer there. Boxwork and popcorn and frostwork leave distinctive patterns on all the limestone surfaces at Wind Cave. But when you're the first one to explore a cave, remember, you can't see any of it. Without a flashlight or a headlamp, you can't even see an inch in front of your face. It is pitch black. When a caver discovers a new room or chamber, sometimes they can't even see where the walls are, even with a flashlight. For cavers like Mark Ohms, getting an accurate map of what a cave looks like is critical to exploration. And with the help of technology, that's becoming a little bit easier. Well, nowadays, with some of the later, newest technology, we can have these laser things come in, and they just shoot dots everywhere. And every time it shoots a laser someplace, it takes an exact distance, you know, basically a compass reading and inclination, so it knows exact where it is. And because of that we can just get in insanely accurate 3D representations of you know, the cave rooms and stuff. The downside of it, well, besides it being expensive equipment, is that you know, it takes a long time. You know? So doing the entire cave under that is not going to happen you know, anytime soon. So is that not something you would bring in, in on an initial phase of yeah, exploration? That, yeah, that's certainly correct. You know, we'll still use you know, the old technology for now and then if we deem, you know, it's a really large room we want to get a good representation of or something like that, we'll kind of pick and choose, you know, where we want to do the more in-depth stuff. For now, the easiest and quickest way to get a picture of what a cave looks like is to have someone on your team sketch the room. So if you're an artist who doesn't mind crawling into tight spaces in near total darkness, uh, I think I have the perfect job for you. Sketching in a cave is certainly an art and not everyone can do it. So got to have a good sketcher on your team. So if you can sketch well, you get invited on a lot of trips. So it's a pretty safe bet that Mark is going to have a really good sketcher on his team as he explores the depths of Persistence Cave. The thrill of exploration for cavers, you know, is, is finding that next big room, the next passage. We want to see blackness. 
that's what we're looking for blackness that goes on forever you know we don't want to find we don't want to find the end of the cave you know that's that means we're done that's a letdown so you know so we're looking for that new passage and that new thrill and when you get into something and you look around and you don't see any footprints you know you're the first person here and you know this cave's been here for millions of years and you look across a room and you know a crystal sparkles and you realize in the million years that that crystal's been there it's never ever ever sparkled before because it's never had light on it before until your headlight you know made it sparkle and that's pretty cool so, i mean there's not many places on this earth that you can have that thrill of exploration you know i mean it's been a long time since astronauts have even felt that you know until we land on mars you know that's it so you know cavers you know right here in your own backyard can you know have that thrill of exploration and being the first person someplace i never thought of being in a cave like space exploration but he is totally right carter were there ever times in yosemite where you felt like you were on another planet um, yes, it was in the spider caves near Yosemite Falls, and it was like cramped spaces. It felt like an, on another planet because there was like no one in there, and you saw spider webs in the cave. That's it for this episode of Brains On. You can check out the rest of our series on national parks at our website, brainson.org. Brains On is produced by Mark Sanchez, Sandin Taunton, and Molly Bloom. Many thanks to Leslie Watley, Lauren D, and Corey Shruffle. You can see photos of Wind Cave National Park on our Instagram. We're at brains underscore on. And that's our Twitter handle, too. Now, before we go, it's time for our moment of um... Do bears really eat honey? Bears do eat honey. I'm Dave Garcellis. I'm a bear research biologist, a bear scientist with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. It's a very attractive food for them. They don't find that much in the wild, but it is something that they really like. When they get to a bee's nest, not only do they eat the honey, but they eat the bees and all the eggs and the larvae and the pupae, and they scarf all of that up. There's eight species of bears in the world, and most of them are what are called omnivores, which means they eat both meat and vegetation. But some of them, like the polar bear, is the only species that's strictly a carnivore. It only eats meat. And the giant panda is the only species that only eats vegetation. It only eats bamboo. And then one of the species called a sloth bear concentrates primarily on insects. It really likes termites and ants. And actually, the scientific name of a sloth bear is Mel Ursus, and Mel in Latin means honey. And so that bear is known for particularly liking honey. And there's a, actually there's a scene in the Jungle Book where the bear Balu, which is a sloth bear, convinces the kid Mowgli to climb a cliff to knock down um, a bee's nest for him. And that's because they really like honey. I'm very excited to read this list of sweet names. It's the Brains Honor Roll. The wonderful listeners who keep us going by sending their amazing ideas, questions, mystery sounds, drawings, and high fives. They are the best. 
Sage from Alameda, California, Louisa from Arlington, Virginia, William from New York, New York, Addie from Ferndale, California, Jonathan and Kieran from Taipei, Taiwan, Rosie and Solly from Skokie, Illinois, Anna from Chevy Chase, Maryland, Alex and Sam from Sydney, Australia, Sylvia from St. Joseph, Michigan, Cora and Levi from West Springfield, Virginia, Sophia from Oceanside, California, Ailey from Greenville, North Carolina, Emmy from Charlotte, North Carolina, Cosette from Austin, Texas, Mira from Brooklyn, New York, Rocco from Indianapolis, Olo from Kalamazoo, Michigan, JT and Briar from Indian Land, South Carolina, Tate, Rory and Ash from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Athena from Oak Park, Illinois, Mimi and San from Los Angeles, Josiah from Rochester, New Hampshire, Sam and Lucy from Ann Arbor, Michigan, Maddie from Pelion, South Carolina, Evan and Naomi from Westboro, Massachusetts, Jackson from Smithfield, Rhode Island, Hazel from Salt Lake City, Micah from Toronto, Anna Grace from Los Angeles, Eliza and Solomon from Philadelphia, Anna from Vaughan, Ontario, Ezra and Sage from Bethlehem, New Hampshire, Juliet and Quinton from Rapid City, South Dakota, Tegan and Cyrus from Seattle, Kate from Broomfield, Colorado, Simon and Finn from Camillus, New York, Dashiell from Philadelphia, Lily from Larchmont, New York, Jack from Seattle, Sam from Taranga, New Zealand, Lucy and Henry from Lawrenceville, Georgia, Sydney from Denver, Caden from Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, Callum from Durham, North Carolina, Katie and Tyler from Jacksonville, Florida, Bella, Katie and Noah from Thayer, Kansas, Riley from Menlo Park, California, Xander and Gray from Virginia Beach, Virginia, Emily from California, Pippin from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Daniel from Hoboken, New Jersey, and Nathaniel from San Jose, California. We'll be back soon with more answers to your questions. Thanks for listening. And now a preview of Smash Boom Best, Loki versus Athena. Okay, it's time for the sneak attack. <laughs> sneak attack. And remember, the sneak attack is a mystery. Jed and Elissa have no idea what it's going to be. I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah. All right. Your surprise sneak attack is shark attack. How would your side defend against a shark attack? Would you use smarts, strength, diplomacy? Get creative. And remember, there's more than one way through a horde of angry, toothy sharks. Jed, you're up first. Let's hear how Loki would fend off a gang of angry sharks. Well, this is actually quite easy. Loki is a shapeshifter. He can change into animals. So he would change into a killer whale, which, you know, can take down sharks. But he's also a trickster, so after he changes into a killer whale, well, he'd tie that shark's fins together and then drop an anvil on top of it. Shape-shifting anvil dropper. Let's hear how Athena would handle those toothy fiends. She would um, have her Greek buds build a wooden shark, and their best diplomat would get inside the shark. It's really cushy in there. There's oxygen supply. And he would um, join the swarm of angry sharks, chit-chat with them a little, um, with all the wisdom Athena has imparted to her human mentees. And he would convince them to just, you know, go to a different part of the ocean and no blood need be shed. The end. She's using her smarts, her strategy, to get those sharks to go away. If there's ever any evidence that Athena is totally boring, here you have it. You don't want a bunch of shark friends? I can change into a shark anytime I want. I'm a shark right now. You're both in Poseidon's territory. Good point. Smash. Boom. Best. To hear the rest of this debate, head to smashboom.org or subscribe to Smash Boom Best wherever you get your podcasts.